thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 135 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Louise Stephen, former business consultant who developed an autoimmune disease in her early 30s, which led to renal failure and a kidney transplant. Louise was perplexed as to how she had become so ill, so she started to investigate about the influence of diet and how it relates to health. In her book, Eating Ourselves Sick, she uncovers how big food got us hooked on sugar, wheat and oil. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined by Louise Stephen, former business consultant who developed an autoimmune disease in her early 30s which led to renal failure and a kidney transplant. Today Louise shares her story and tells us all about her book, Eating Ourselves Sick. Hi Louise and welcome to the show. Hi Steph, Uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Now, I touched briefly on your story, but I know the journey is, you know, quite significant and I would love for you just to share with us your health journey and and a little bit about where it took you to today. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, look, really, uh, it started off quite a few years ago now um, when I was uh, in my early 30s. I was a a corporate strategy consultant working in in the big firms and uh, I was really a consumer consumer behaviour retail type of um, consultant. And, you know, I was living the typical consultant lifestyle, (laughs) which, um, you know, a lot of on the go and long hours and travelling and all the rest of it. And I was always, you know, I always had these sort of chronic infections, like I could never ever shake infections and I was always sort of coughing and any flu that was going around, any type of bug, I would get it. And, you know, I sort of thought that I was eating pretty healthy. Um, You know, I was eating all the grains and, you know, food pyramids and everything else. And um, But, you know, watching my weight as well because I didn't, you know, you sort of have to have the look (laughs) in, in that field, like you can't get out of control with the eating. So, um, I thought that I was doing quite well, but I couldn't understand why I was sick all of the time and I just never seemed to have good health. Um, eventually what happened was uh, I um, picked up a bug and, and actually became really, really, really sick and I ended up with kidney damage. And that um, once I had sort of testing done for all that, it turned out that it was an autoimmune disease and the organ damage was basically permanent and I was going to go into organ failure, kidney failure. And so that actually happened. Um, I did actually have a baby in, in the main, like shortly after being diagnosed, um, but eventually I did wind up uh, losing my kidney and becoming a dialysis patient and, um, and then a transplant patient. So um, <coughs> I did, <coughs> excuse me, um, I did uh, sort of go through that, that whole, you know, questioning of you know, how does this happen and I would be told, well, it's just this rare autoimmune disease and nobody really knows how, how this happens. And 
Um, and during that time as well, I started to notice that the health of people around me was also declining. So, you know, mental health problems were springing up and kids were getting allergies and intolerances and behavioural problems. And, you know, people um, seemed to be getting chronic fatigue type illnesses. And so it was just sort of just seemed to become everywhere. And when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, this, this wasn't the case. So I knew something sort of odd was going on. Um, now, part of... Um, Part of my journey was was I actually picked up the book, the Western Price book, um, uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, and I read that from back to front. And so I was really intrigued by the idea that these Indigenous populations around the world were actually, you know, quite healthy in the in the twenties and thirties until they started to consume these three ingredients that that had come to them via the trade winds. And these three ingredients were. Um, you know, the sugar and the refined flour and also margarines and, and sugary jams and things like this. And from that point on, they started to, their health started to decline. Now, probably a lot of your listeners know about Western Price, um, but what I was really intrigued by was these three ingredients and the sort of realisation as well that these three ingredients of the, like, refined grains, uh, such as wheat and rice, etc., cetera, um, sugar and margarine, type seed oils were really the core component of our processed food um, supply that we're all consuming. So I, I really found that intriguing and that, that led me on to to want to write the book once I'd sort of recovered from transplant surgery, which was, you know, that was an ordeal within itself. But uh, that was really what set me off wanting to, to write Eating Ourselves Sick. So, <laughs> does that? <laughs> yeah, that is. That definitely gives us the trajectory. And uh, for those that don't know, um, eating ourselves sick is the thorough investigation into the epidemic that we see with chronic disease and how that links back to our diet. So, when you were researching for the book, what were some of the most surprising things you learned about the influence of big business or big food or the government? Right. Well, I mean, when you start to really break down the issue, so I was looking at it as like, we've got this processed food that we're all consuming um, and it really is narrowed down to just a small number of ingredients. So it is the refined grain, it is the sugar and it is the cheap oils like the um, the seed oils and the palm oils and, and things like this. So you're really looking at the commodities industry as well. You're not just looking at the processed food manufacturers. You've got to go further upstream and look at well, where where does their food supply come from? Why are they making these products? Why is it when I pick up a box of cereal off the shelf in the supermarket, it's just you can look at the ingredients and it's just some sort of refined grain plus some sugar plus some vitamins and minerals thrown in, um, biscuits the same. So why is it that they're so dependent on these particular products. So you go back up into the supply chain and you look, start looking at the commodities industry. And the commodities industry is tremendously wealthy and tremendously powerful and it's been around for a long time. Um, so I think when the surprising thing is that really you, you sort of put the blame on some processed food company and say, well, it's their fault, but really they're dependent on on their own supply chain and the sorts of products that come through. So you're not just talking about the influence of processed food industry on governments, you're also looking at the commodities industry as well. And then you're looking at the number of jobs and the amount of revenue, the amount of money that they make. So you start to realise that there are all these stakeholders that you didn't really think of before. Then you've got the pharmaceutical industry. Then you've got um, uh, growers and you've got um, people who truck the food. And who, So there are all of these stakeholders that all kind of 
vector into the issue of food. And when you're somebody who's in government, you've got to balance the needs of the stakeholders, you, you know, and I think the consumers, really, the general population, don't they don't have the power. They don't have the power to go and make demands on government, um, whereas industry taking in processed food plus commodities have got a huge power. You know, they've got a lot of money and with money comes influence. And so I think that was the most surprising that I was sort of just looking at <clears throat> products on the shelf and just not, you know, not really realising the whole, the scale of this system that's enormous. Mm. Um, so uh, I think that was really the most surprising, just the lack of power that the people have. Yeah. And, and, but, I mean, when you say that, it's they lack that sort of, power from being able to persuade government to do to bring in a sugar tax or whatever but they actually have immense power in terms of purchasing and we might get to that a bit later on we, when we talk about um you know big business again um but just the purchasing power and how it's forcing uh, corporate food corporations to change the supply chain uh and start you know making food products from healthier ingredients um which is a big shift that's happening now so yeah, I agree. And it's this awareness of what influences our you know, the industry as well as the food pyramid is where it all starts. Because I think, you know, not dissimilar to your story, there'd be plenty of people that have had their own epiphany in terms of what the current situation actually is. Like we often talk about turning the food pyramid upside down, which when someone first hears about that sounds totally crazy because, you know, nearly everyone is told to have their six to 11 serves of whole grains a day that fat will make you fat and give you cardiovascular disease and so on and so forth, you know, whereas the, the turning of the food period upside down is certainly a positive step towards more of a real food lifestyle. So if we talk about the whole grains to start, you know, Let's, and let's talk about that food pyramid. What do you think is the biggest influencing factor there as to why we've been told this for so long in terms of our intake? Well, I think there's a bit of background to the, to the whole food pyramid and some, some listeners may know already and others may not, so we'll, we'll cover that. Um, the, 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 the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, always had, you know, had sort of various incarnations of healthy eating guides for quite a long time. But there was a nutritionist um, who worked uh, in public health over in the United States. Her name was Louise Light. And she actually was asked by the USDA, if I remember correctly, to develop a sort of a healthy eating, a proper healthy eating guide. So she went off and she she actually developed the food pyramid and she did it in conjunction with scientists and, you know, nutrition experts and everything. And they actually developed a food pyramid that had across the bottom um, plants, so it was vegetables mm. and fruits. So her original one, which she designed um, to prevent chronic disease, was actually based on vegetables and fruits. And the grain component was really only two two slices per day or two serves per day, um, and three if you were very uh, active or you know were expending a lot of energy. And so she sent her final pyramid off to for approval, uh, and it came back to her completely inverted with all of the grains across the bottom and, you know, the huge servings of grains. Um, and she was horrified because she knew from the science that uh, all of her investigations into health that 
this was going to lead to an epidemic of chronic disease because it was just far too much carbohydrate for what most people would be going going to need and but see a lot of, there was obviously there were various stakeholders that had a say there so you know there would would have been the grains industry there's also subsidies you know government subsidies are being given out to corn and to wheat growers and um, not a lot of books have been written about the commodities industry because commodities is a lot of it was actually privately owned by huge families, so they could afford to be quite secretive about what they were doing. Uh, but probably one of the best books I've ever found was called The Merchants of Grain, and it's not an easy book to get, but um, that really explains, you know, that whole <laughs> – there's a lot more to it than than just the pyramid. There's, there's just – it's such a complex area of uh, the politics behind grain. So it, when you read a book like The Merchants of Grain, you can understand how she would have been overwritten in, in terms of um, her pyramid. So um, so what happened, also there was also, um, we have to remember that those guidelines also informed what was going to go into school lunches and things as well. And so by having um, the pyramid that had all of the grains, it, it was a real win for the for the grains industry in America to have all of the grains at the bottom because that then informed school um, lunch guidelines and hospital guidelines, um, which meant that they could sell a lot more product. So <laughs> I think it, it did come down to the influence of the grains industry. Um but, you know, what people are finding now is that the inversion, her original version, was probably better. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of the trend is now going is to go low carbon to cut, you know, irrespective of what government guidelines are because they're not, uh, you know, there's a lot of iffiness around them. Um, and actually to cut the carbohydrates out and get back to the sort of the vegetables and the, the healthy fats and, and um, you know, meats and things like that. So yeah, I think people are really challenging that food pyramid right now, and um, and uh, yeah, but that was the original story. She she actually was an original food pyramid there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and obviously things got very twisted so that you know the big companies would benefit. Um, I know in the book you speak about um, big food, or you liken big food to big tobacco, which I think is quite interesting because. I'm sure everyone's aware of how much the tobacco industry invested to make smoking appear healthy and sexy, you know, decades ago now, whereas, you know, big food's been doing that over the last five decades and Mm -hmm. we're only really, as a society, uncovering that in recent years. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of paper and, you know, even when I was writing the book, um, the, the the papers from the Sydney Diet Heart, um, the, the hidden papers <laughs> kind of wound up in a box um, shoved somewhere. Um, they came out and, uh, you know, looking at corn oil and how there was actually corn oil involved and how people who ate the, the diet um, died quicker <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are being uncovered, certainly about the Dental Association and the, the role in um, in trying to make dental health, you know, anything but the sugar, you know, anything. So it, it went off in the direction of fluoride as being the solution. Uh, they just didn't want to talk about sugar. So, um, yeah, so I think this is the, there's a really great unveiling happening across uh, across this area and, and um, you know, that I sort of get into a lot of that in my book. 
uh, yeah, it's also a huge eye-opener of just how uh, the tentacles of big food are spread into every field, you know. These guys are everywhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk more about the Heart Foundation, actually, because I'm sure you're quite aware of the, um, the what is it, the tick of approval and the five-star rating that we now see on certain foods. Um, what what are your thoughts on on that and the connection back to the influencing factors that we've been speaking of? Well, you know, look, I did look at all of these organisations while I was writing the book as well. Um, I think, you know, in terms of the Heart Foundation, look, heart disease is still the leading cause of death in the world. So I think something's a little bit up there when, uh, I mean, there's a lot less smoking. So I think it's, you know, heart disease has sort of dropped off in Western countries. It's smoking related, but it's still the leading cause of death. And, you know, to look at um, type 2 diabetes, I mean, we've got these global diabetes federations and diabetes associations. Well, this is an epidemic. So, you know, you really have to start to ask the question, what are these people really doing? You know, why are these illnesses exploding on their watch? Um, and I think I actually think that they're going to come under increased scrutiny. These uh, sort of disease organisations. I think their time is coming as well. Um, so the Heart Foundation and its tick, yeah, it was on some pretty strange foods, and it came under scrutiny for that. And um, you know, it's had to relook at that. And now we've got the Star System as well, and now that's come under a lot of scrutiny as well. Um, and now it turns out that sugar <clears throat> was never part of the algorithm as well. So, which is understandable when you consider that um, a lot of the breakfast cereals that have the st- the star on it are actually actually have high levels of sugar. And um, so it makes sense that you wouldn't want sugar in the algorithm. I was looking at a different, um, gee, it was called the, it was a different sort of star system that operates in America. And they actually have sugar in the algorithm. And so they actually put sugar into it. Um, but that was really for, they were using it for cooked meals and to try to give a star rating. Um, I think it's called the guiding star. So you know, there is, a, there is one in existence. One piece of research that I found really, really interesting, which we really shed some light on, on why they wouldn't want, it's, it gives us another dimension as to why you wouldn't want to have sugar in an algorithm where you want to steer your attention away. And this was actually some research that was done by a, you know, a sort of an investor analysis firm called CLSA. And they were really interested in, in sugar and whether this was really going to impact um, you know, corporations such as Coca-Cola and whether this had really meant anything to the shareholders and to the investors, you know, they wanted to be able to give really good information to their clients. And so they actually did a little um, analysis based on um, they compared uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi and the big the big um, soft drink companies and they they did a nice little set of numbers um, which, which really showed the grams of sugar per dollar of um, total EBIT. So that's operating profit. So what they're really saying is looking at the grams of sugar that each of these companies need to to generate operating profit. And Coca-Cola came out really high. And so what, um, so they basically were using, I've got 13 trillion grams of sugar per year. That's Coca-Cola, according to this analysis, 13 trillion grams of Coke. 
and they're very they're very dependent on sugar. So I think it would be really interesting to look at some of those other breakfast companies and biscuit manufacturers and things and, and do that same analysis and look at just how dependent they are on sugar to get their profit. And um, actually, Pepsi wasn't a bad, wasn't too bad, and didn't come out too bad in this analysis. But this was because they're diversified, so they were more diversified into products that didn't have so much sugar in them, so altered their ratio. Um, so I think with star rating systems, it really should have sugar should be part of it for consumer, um, you know, to get to get consumer trust. It really does need to have sugar in it. Whether industry are going to allow that to happen is altogether another question um, and it's the star systems being reviewed at the moment and so it really does depend on whether um, you know people working in public health can really apply the pressure and say you know this star system's pointless if we're not mm. going to include sugar which is so high on the world health organization's agenda to get our health back on track so we'll just see we'll see when it comes out and we'll we'll see <laughs> how, whether they're successful in managing to get sugar put into that algorithm um, but really, the star system at the end of the day is just a way to make processed food, you know, give it a healthy halo in any case. And and I think the trend is that people are increasingly looking away from the processed foods mm. in any case and looking for the fresher options, um, which is, you know, being reflected in a lot of the analysis that's coming through as well. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's yeah. sort of looking like we need to turn this upside down as well. Like, you know, the slogan is the more stars, the healthier the choice, but it's definitely seeming to be the opposite. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Without sugar in the algorithm, it's um, you wonder what the point of it is <laughs> because, you know, this is a real battleground. These are battleground areas and one of the reasons why I was so interested in these three food items that make up the, the processed food supply um, is that people are, you know, trying to get rid of these refined grain products and yet the cereals are made from refined grains, most of them. Um, they're trying to get rid of sugar and yet there's so much sugar in the cereals. And so, uh, you know, you wonder what the point of it is. But I guess, again, it comes back to that idea of making processed foods appear healthier and also Let's not forget there's the issue of consumer perception. And I did, I was doing a little bit of analysis recently where even it, it appeared what they were saying from the research was that even having stars and health, the word health on it, mm. gave an impression of health. You know, do you know what I mean? Like when you're talking about consumer perceptions. Yeah, we call that greenwashing. <laughs> yeah, so there was even just this perception that, that even if there's, stars on it probably you know even a couple of stars there's still some implications for health and you know you really do have to you look at the ingredients of some of these products and you you know you'd struggle to agree with that one <laughs> yeah absolutely but I think a lot of it comes down to the education so people aren't just falling into the trap of choosing something because it's got 4.5 stars um, without actually reading the nutritional label and looking at the sugars and you know, empowering them, empowering themselves with that knowledge to make a good purchasing decision. Yeah, yeah, agree. I think reading, getting into the habit of reading labels and just reading them for yourself and having a look at what those ingredients are and if they're the sort of refined products, then, you know, maybe look for something that's a bit, you know, try and avoid that. Um, but, yeah, it is education, certainly education to just move past the stars and go to the ingredients panel. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the peak health bodies? Did you uncover any research there with 
they're influencing factors. Like I struggle a lot, you know, being a nutritionist. People always ask me, you know, why I'm not a, a dietitian. And to be honest, one of the biggest reasons was because of the the way the Dietetics Association in Australia, um, you know, provide that information and, and encourage their dietitians to recommend the food pyramid and so on and so forth. Um, did you uncover any research there about like sponsors of the DAA and what goes on there? Yeah, well, look, this, this is a problem with dietetics organisations globally. Um, they're all backed by or, you know, partnering, um, funded, whatever, whichever way you want to express that, uh, by processed food. And um, not only that, uh, you've got some of them uh, that are actually funded by big agriculture and pharmaceutical companies as well. And not only that, you get certain dietitians who, when you have a look at their profile, um, they're actually consulting to pharmaceutical, to the pharmaceutical industry and the processed food industry as well, but they kind of push that to the back, you know, like you have to dig around to find it, <laughs> but they don't promote that for obvious reasons. So you, you really have to ask the question why you're consulting to the pharmaceutical industry and then promoting yourself out in the mainstream as, um, you know, a legitimate person concerned with giving people plenty of fruits and vegetables. It just doesn't really make sense. Um, there was actually, it doesn't seem to matter where you really go in whether it's a, a public health body or a, or a dietitian's association or um, a kind of a health um like a you know a health charity or whatever they they pretty much for the most part do have food or drug or both um industry funding and i'll, I'll actually read out it's actually one of an example i've got in the book there's a, a group called the oxford health alliance and you know you would look at this organization on the surface as being you know concerned with public health but when you dig a bit deep you find that it's it is actually an alliance between the university of oxford and novo nordisk which is which is a um, pharmaceutical company, but they specialise in diabetes care. But other funding partners actually include Pepsi and Nestle, Johnson and Johnson. Um, they've got a PR firm. They've got a um, they've got a healthcare marketing firm who's who has a website that boasts um, proudly pushing drugs for seventy five years on their website. They've got Diabetes Australia, who's actually uh, corporate partners, numerous pharmaceutical companies. Um, they've got the Stroke Foundation, uh, which is has corporate funders in, in the pharmaceutical industry as well. And so it just sort of goes on and on. And um, when you look at even the, the person who actually was running this organisation, their various connections are, again, food and, food and pharmaceutical organisations. So it, it just seems to be all over the place, I've got to say. And But I think people are really waking up to, to this as well and it's really affecting trust. Um, I noticed the diet, that dietitians have got a hashtag, um, which is hashtag trust a dietitian. But I think that when you have to have a hashtag like that applied to your field of endeavour, you're already in trouble. Um, can you imagine hashtag trust a doctor, hashtag trust a, trust a librarian? You know, it, it why would you have a a hashtag that says trust us um so i think that people are really waking up to the food industry funding behind these groups and the pharmaceutical connections and you know it's affecting trust in that in that field so i know that's a big issue for them i don't know what they're going to do about it um but i i also think that people are looking for 
solutions in terms of they're looking for broader solutions to their problems. So they're looking really for people, you know, that maybe fall outside the dietetics field. They're looking for the non-traditional um, health uh practitioner that can help them so they're looking for people who can help them with sleep and with exercise and can give them a more holistic approach anyway mm-hmm. so I think that with the there's a mismatch between what dietetics is kind of putting out there and what consumers are now demanding given our epidemic of health related conditions so I, you know there's a problem there as well and I think in this marketplace you've got to be able to provide a solution to consumers you know you can't just talk down to them anymore they're not interested. Uh, in in that approach and the very educated people are part of sort of online communities they exchange a lot of information online they compare notes they trust each other more than they trust authority so there's big issues with authority as well so yeah I think there's a lot shifting it's a really dynamic space at the moment um so yeah yeah it is interesting I think as you say like our diet has changed a lot in the last 100 years but I do think that things are going full circle again. You know, people are so much savvier than ever before and you don't need to be a rocket scientist to appreciate that factory-made products are not real food. So if we take things full circle back to your story, um, you know, and I don't know how much you want to divulge, but obviously the sugars and the seed oils and the refined wheat were, you know, were these part of the problem for you and then what did you do from a practical standpoint to get your health back on track from a food point of view? Well, look, I think, um, you know, it's it, it would probably be a mistake for me to say that my specific health condition or my specific illness was directly resulted to, it was directly connected to what I was eating because you can't really find, um, you know, evidence in the science that would say, well, you ate this, you ate sugar, so you ended up with this organ damage. Um, but what I would say is that autoimmunity generally, look, the numbers now appearing on the government websites are 1 million Australians. So that's on the, um, I had made a note of it somewhere, uh, the, um, the health, medical health, one of the, I can, I can put a link somewhere or get back. There is a link to it. So they're actually saying now 1 million and it's on an official government health website. 1 million Australians now have autoimmunity so and under autoimmunity is about a, you know over 100 probably 130 separate illnesses and mine is just one of those what scientists are looking at now is, is really the role of the gut and autoimmunity that seems to be where they're zeroing in and you know gut damage and how that can then lead to the inflammatory process that then puts you under chronic you know, chronic inflammatory state which can then lead to serious damage to tissues mm. and organs so uh, what's really interesting is at Monash University, they're doing a lot of work, uh, they're autoimmune immuno- immunology specialists, and um, they're really looking at the role of diet and uh, resistant starch and gut bacteria, and um, they're, they're wondering or sort of proposing this idea that they can probably prevent, that if you're on the right diet to begin with, um, you can probably possibly prevent autoimmune diseases from really developing. And um, and so really you have to wonder about what is the role of the Western diet generally in causing the gut conditions to which autoimmunity then stem and whether, you know, getting back to that diet, uh, you know, whether it's a paleo or whether it's just based on an inverted food pyramid or whatever it is, but basically getting rid of these refined products 
getting rid of the sugar, getting rid of the seed oil and getting back to our natural diet is, is going to provide those conditions in the gut um, that will help the bacteria get, get back to where it needs to be to sort of prevent the illnesses. Another really interesting um, aspect, I was just doing some reading on um, Martin Blazer's latest piece, and he he's actually putting forward maybe the idea that we're actually losing gut bacteria-specific um, you know, species that we actually need because we need something that they produce uh, in order to produce metabolites which then affect genes. And he's looking at the three ways that we are actually losing um, the bacteria, and one is through birth. The next one is um, through we're, not, we're no longer sharing bacteria among one another. So he was saying that we used, to, we used to actually share the same water and through that we would share the same bacteria and so you would and then there'd be a selection process, um, like an intelligent selection that takes place in the gut where um, we'd be exposed to this new bacteria and, and the gut would decide, I guess, what we're going to keep and what we don't need. So we, we kind of could top up and freshen up our bacteria and exchange it and move it around. And then there's this other process of maintenance that then goes on through throughout our life. And I guess that that Western diet um, really interferes along the way, along with, um, you know, caesarean birth and not being breastfed and then not sharing bacteria across one another, like cross-populating our bacteria, and then not maintaining it because we're consuming the Western diet, and then we get the cascade of illnesses after that. So while I can't say my specific illness was caused by a particular food group, um, I think I'm just part of that wave of people who, you know, I'm part of the one million people who have got autoimmunity. And um, but today, in terms of what do I do today? Well, now I've had a transplant, so um, you know I have to take a lot of medications for that. Um, but you know I just don't eat the grains anymore, and I eat the healthy fats, and I don't, you know, I just don't, I just stay away from the processed foods. Yeah, just eat real food, as we say. Yep, just eat real food. It's quite simple. Um, and I've what I found was actually when I gave up eating gluten that a whole lot of um, health problems or sort of symptoms really that I had, which was freezing cold hands. I mean, I'd had freezing cold hands since I was a teenager. Um, I was forever runny nose, um, bloated, just all of these things which you just think, oh, well, that's just normal, tired, brain fog. Um, you know, I remember working as management consulting and just all the time feeling that I couldn't, um, push through this brain fog that I'd have. And, you know, since giving up gluten, like I wrote a whole book, never had brain fog once. <laughs> and yet that was really, that's one of my big memories of consulting is is just all the time trying to push through this brain fog and wondering, oh, is it not enough coffee? Is it not enough And just sugar? thinking it's normal as well, which I think is a lot of people's reality. You do. You think it's just normal and it's got to be some other, um, there's got to be some other reason for it, like you're just not getting enough coffee or something not enough sleep and really you you never imagine that it could be something that you're consuming so that was a real surprise for me just how many and I had skin rashes I had all kinds of things and, and it all just went as soon as I gave up those processed foods it just went so um yeah, amazing yeah Good. I'm glad you got to experience that firsthand. And, you know, I think it's a really good place for people to start their research. I know it's not a diet book per se, but eating ourselves sick will allow everyone to, to you know, have that light bulb moment themselves to learn about the influence of industry and, and big food. And I think 
take the power back into their own hands. So yeah, it's been great to chat with you and learn more about your book and I highly encourage our listeners to get their hands on a copy. Yes, been great talking to you, Steph. Absolutely. Thanks, Louise. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.